The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. I'm glad you're back here. It's our joy to be back in the book of Revelation tonight. If you'll turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. I'm enjoying working through this book. Uh, it's been a blessing to me. Hopefully it's uh, been a blessing to you as well. Uh, looking forward to continuing our work uh, through this book. Uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5 really are pivotal, pivotal chapters. There, this, uh, this, this scene of this throne room in heaven uh, sets the stage, if you will. It's uh, from this context of the throne room in chapters 4 and 5 that we then begin to see the seals uh, broken, uh, loosed, beginning in chapter 6. And we'll get there very soon. So tonight we're, we've, we've looked at Revelation chapter 5 and uh, essentially, very simply, uh, broke the chapter down into three sections. Uh, the seal or the scroll, uh, the savior and the song. And so we've considered the scroll. We looked at the scroll last week. Uh, tonight we're going to look at the savior. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll take a look at the song sung by those worshiping in heaven uh, so it's the title of our sermon, there is one who is worthy. There's one who is worthy. Our text, Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And so I'll read our text together tonight and we'll pray and dig in and see what the Lord has for us tonight. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. All God's people said, amen. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful to you for the book of Revelation. Thank you, Lord, for uh, disclosing uh, the contents of this book to us. It's such a grace uh, to your church, such a grace to this church, and we're very, very grateful, Lord, to be able to consider these things and to uh, ponder them and to meditate on them and to uh, consider our lives in light of them as we await your soon return and long for you, Lord, long for the day when you will return and fully and finally consummate the everlasting kingdom and uh, just look forward uh, to the glory of that 
uh, future day in great anticipation. And I, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, bolster our hope, fuel our faith in light of that uh, coming day, and help us to live for you now in a way that glorifies you and honors you. Uh, we know it's through your word, Lord, that your spirit works to enable us. And so we ask for your help, ask for your aid, help us to understand, help us to apply these things. May it be for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There is one who is worthy. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. G.K. Beale, and G.K. Beale wrote a terrific commentary on the book of Revelation, very helpful. G.K. Beale describes Revelation 5 as portraying a vision of inaugurated fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. I want you to think about that for a moment and let that sink in. Revelation 5 is portraying a vision of inaugurated fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The Lord Jesus Christ, having inaugurated the kingdom, the everlasting kingdom with his first coming, the Lord having conquered sin and death, the Lord having um, come as the promised seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent, uh, having then ascended bodily into heaven on the clouds of heaven, having received the kingdom, we saw that in Daniel chapter 7, uh, being given all authority in heaven and on earth, he states that in Matthew chapter 28, he, as king, begins to rule over his kingdom, which has been inaugurated. He takes the scroll, the sealed scroll, from the right hand of him who sits on the throne, and in Revelation chapter 6, the one who is worthy to take the scroll begins to open its seals. Now, why is that? Why is that? In, in very simple terms, it's because the end has come. The end, the time of the end has come. The visions of Daniel. Remember when we took a look at Daniel, Daniel chapter 7 through Daniel chapter 10 in particular, those visions of the end and the, the everlasting kingdom that would never pass away, those visions were sealed in a book. You remember that from Daniel chapter 12, right? Uh, that sealed book not to be opened until the time of the end. Well, now the end has come. The time of the end is upon us. And so the taking of the scroll and the breaking of its seals represent an inaugurated fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is king, or ruling over his kingdom, now begins to exercise his authority in the unsealing of this scroll. It is an inaugurated fulfillment. Inaugurated at the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then progressively now fulfilled as his kingdom is expanded through the preaching of the gospel, fully consummated, fully fulfilled when he returns a second time to judge the world and to usher the sons of God into their eternal glory. The fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in and through the exalted person and finished work of Jesus Christ has begun. It has begun. And in verse 9, he is worthy to take the scroll. He's worthy to open its seals. Why? It's because he was slain. He was slain. He has redeemed us to God by his blood, and he has made us kings and priests to our God. Now that inaugurated fulfillment signified in the Lord of glory, taking the scroll at his ascension, at the inauguration of his kingdom, and beginning to open its seals. That fulfillment begins at this point, do you see, in the text. Now, that tremendous fulfillment, Old Testament prophecy, that tremendous fulfillment of all of the promises of God to his people, concerning his people, depends entirely 
upon God's faithfulness to his word in sending this promised Messiah. You see, all of these promises, promises of God um, concerning the end, concerning the kingdoms of this world, the judgment that would fall upon them, and the establishment of the everlasting kingdom under the rule and reign of his promised Messiah, all of those promises to his people, his people reigning with him, his people inheriting in him, all of those promises depend entirely upon God's faithfulness to his word in sending this promised Messiah, the promised seed of the woman the only one worthy to possess the kingdom, the only one worthy to sit upon the throne of David, the only one worthy to take the scroll, the only one worthy to open its seals, the only one worthy to execute the decrees and judgment of God concerning the end, the only one worthy to bring the redemptive plans and purposes of God to their consummated and completed end. That's what Jesus Christ begins to do here. He's the only one worthy to do it. Apart from him, apart from him, all would be unfulfilled. Do you see? All would be unfulfilled. In him, in him, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Right? It's, it's where we get this understanding of a hermeneutic of promise and fulfillment. Right? Hermeneutics is the, the art and science, if you will, of biblical interpretation and a, a proper biblical interpretation, a proper understanding, in particular of New Testament texts, is promise and fulfillment. It's a, it's a lens through which we look at the Bible to understand what's being revealed to us. And we have promise, and in particular promise, we have many promises in the New Testament, but promises related to the coming of the end, promises re regarding the church and God's people, all of those promises, and we see uh, those promises largely encapsulated in the Old Testament, now begin to be fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. At the first coming of Jesus Christ, all of those promises of God find their fulfillment, their fulfillment is inaugurated, and in him, their fulfillment will be consummated and completed. Do you see? So it's a hermeneutic of promise and fulfillment, and that fulfillment in Jesus Christ. All the scripture is about him, right? All the scripture points to him. Now, it's apparent at the opening of the scene in Revelation chapter 5, that all of this was not apparent to the Apostle John. There is an evident and palpable tragedy expressed in the silence of heaven and earth to the angel's question. And there is an evident despair in John's response. Listen to verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, that scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel. The angel was proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? You can hear the, the, not in my voice, but the thundering voice of that angel throughout the known universe, right? That thundering voice uh, calling out, who is worthy? And silence was the response. No one, verse three, no one in heaven, no one on the earth or under the earth. Those locations in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, same wording from the giving of the law in Exodus chapter 20 regarding idolatry. Those are the realms in which man conceives of idols that could possibly in their own 
conception, their own imaginations uh, might bear uh, worth or worthiness to, to be worshiped. Those idols cannot hear, nor can they speak. They certainly cannot deliver. No one in heaven, no one on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So John, John's response, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. John's grief, his despair in verse 4, informed by his understanding of the nature of the scroll. His grief informed by what's in that scroll, okay? From Daniel chapter 7, you have to remember with me, from Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 12, John would have understood the scroll to involve judgments against the kingdoms of this world. Those kingdoms of this world will be cast down. A small rock would grow into a great mountain that fills the entire earth, and those kingdoms of the world would be crushed. They would be no more. They would be cast down in the judgments of our God. Without that, there can be no final victory, right? No, no final victory apart from a final judgment of God against the wicked, against the wicked kingdoms of this world. No end to sins. That's Daniel chapter 9. No end to the bitter trial of the church and her persecution. No ultimate triumph for the church. No new heaven, no new earth, no future rest, no future inheritance, no future communion with the triune God in eternity. If those judgments don't take place, if the seals aren't broken and those decrees aren't executed. So John says, in considering what's written in that scroll, John says, I wept much because no one was found worthy. It's that question, again, that has been seeking an answer since the fall of Adam. Who is worthy? Who is worthy? It's a question that may only be answered in the victory of the last Adam. Verse 5. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And the statements, the statements in verses 5 and 6 now draw our attention to this worthy one. One of the elders, in other words, one of the, one of the representatives of the redeemed people of God. We had talked about that. Uh, what those elder, who those elders were, what they represent, those elders representing the re- redeemed people of God, one of those elders identifies him, identifies him in the midst of the throne room, in the midst of the created order's utter helplessness, in the midst of John's despair, and there stands this messianic figure who has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. This one, Nikao, has prevailed. He conquers. He overcomes. Word is translated that way in other places. Nikao. The word is an aorist indicative. Uh, What that points to is a specific event in the past that has current ongoing effects, right? This aorist indicative pointing to a specific event in the past. It was in that event in the past that he conquered, that he prevailed. Speaking of a specific, no, what is he speaking of? He's speaking of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is good news, right? This is the gospel. In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, he conquers, he overcomes, he prevails. Turn with me to Philippians chapter two. This is a text that we looked at this morning, but I want to revisit that text tonight in Revelation chapter five. Philippians chapter two. 
was in the cross that he conquers. And we see that exemplified in Philippians chapter 2. Look there beginning at verse 5. Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now, being found in appearance as a man, verse 8, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, this morning in Romans chapter 8, uh, we talked about that in terms of his humiliation, right? taking the form of a, of a slave, coming in the likeness of men. This was the manner in which he overcame. Do you see? He conquers, and he conquers by humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. From start to finish, the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled all righteousness. From start to finish, the Lord Jesus Christ obeyed all of the just demands of God's law. He overcame. He persevered, and he persevered through his suffering. He was victorious where the first Adam failed. In the first Adam's testing, Adam failed. He was victorious where Israel failed. In their time of testing, Israel failed. He alone satisfied the demands of God's law. He alone conquered sin and the grave. How did he do that? Through suffering and death, through resurrection. He alone was raised in resurrection glory. He alone won redemption for those who would be raised in glory in union with him. He has done what no one else could do or has done. Certainly what no one in all of the created order could do. No one in the cosmos could answer the call. He alone is worthy. Do you see? And he's worthy because he conquered. He conquered, he overcame through the means of his cross. That's the purpose of that grammar in Revelation chapter 5, verse 4. Do you see? Therefore, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Why? Because he overcame. He conquered. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the conqueror, the overcomer. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, listen. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He conquered, do you see? Verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now it says there, triumphing over them in it. Well, triumphing over them in what exactly? In his cross. Do you see? He has taken the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed that to the cross, 
And in the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross, in his victory at the cross, do you see? That's why the conquering lion is depicted as a slain lamb. He conquers through his sacrifice. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, this worthy one is referenced by two descriptions. Uh, The first, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And second, he is the root of David. The lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. This dovetails nicely with our sermon this morning in Revelation chapter 8, or Romans chapter 8, because both of these descriptions are indicative of, of his humanity. Both descriptions, certainly indicative of his humanity, he is the foremost among the earthly tribe of Judah, that's represented by the lion, the foremost of that earthly tribe of Judah, and he is a shoot or a descendant of David. Now, both of these references, well, certainly an indication of or emphasizing his humanity, both of these references are also messianic, messianic references. He is the promised Christ, the prophet, priest, and king, the anointed one who would be the only mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, the first of the two, the lion of the tribe of Judah, comes to us from Genesis 49. Turn there with me. Genesis 49. And again, we're looking at the way in which he conquered, at the way in which he overcomes. And we can see some of this in the description of this overcomer. First, as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Second, as the root of David. Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, Jacob, the patriarch, Israel, is dying. And these are the last words of Jacob to his 12 sons. Look at verse 1. Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together now that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Verse 3. Reuben... You are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength. The excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Remember the story of Reuben. Reuben's the firstborn. So we talked this morning about primogeniture briefly. And the right of the firstborn to receive a double portion of the inheritance and the right of the firstborn to rule. The right of the firstborn to reign, as it were, over the family as patriarch. Here, Reuben is the firstborn and Reuben uh, committed a grievous act. It was about 40 years before this point where Jacob is blessing his sons. And it's still in the mind, obviously, of Jacob as he addresses his sons. And Reuben's the firstborn, but... Reuben had gone into Billa, who was um, Jacob's concubine at the time, and committed incest with her, and it has not been forgotten. So according to primogeniture, the birthrights of the firstborn son, an inheritance right, a double portion of the inheritance, and there was a kingly right, but because Reuben commits, commits incest with his father's concubine, Jacob, Jacob doesn't disown him, but he does take from Reuben the rights of a firstborn son. He removes those rights from him. So drop down to verse 8 then. We see how this plays out. Verse 8, Judah, rather than Reuben, 
Judah, you, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. In other words, Judah is going to receive uh, the right to rule here, as it were. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. He's given that right of the firstborn. We know the double portion of the inheritance goes to Joseph's two sons, if you remember that. So Joseph's two sons received the double a portion of the inheritance that would have gone to Reuben, but the kingly right of the firstborn goes to Judah. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him, Shiloh, shall be the obedience of the people. A scepter is held by a king, right? King holds a scepter. A king sits enthroned with a lawgiver between his feet, so to speak, with a scribe between his feet. The king holds a scepter of dominion. A scepter is a scepter of authority, a scepter of righteousness, uh, as it would be described later, a scepter of rule and reign. In this case, Judah holds the scepter of a coming promised king. Do you see? The scepter of a coming future kingdom, a scepter of righteousness, a scepter of obedience, to him shall be the obedience of the people, and Judah will hold it until Shiloh comes. Now, Shiloh is a word that, in one part, uh, it's a word that means son. It's a reference to a son, and in another sense, Shiloh is used to mean a kingdom of peace. Until a son comes, until a kingdom of peace comes, then he, that promised one, takes the scepter as king of kings. Do you see? He takes the scepter from Judah. Now first, this worthy one from Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, is described as the lion, the first and foremost, from the tribe of Judah. He is Shiloh. He's the one who has come. He's the promised one. He's the one who will take the scepter and will rule and reign over an everlasting kingdom. This is in fulfillment all the way back in Genesis 49, a fulfillment of Jacob's blessings upon his 12 sons, in particular here on Judah. This is a fulfillment of that promise. Do you see? Second now, First, he is the lion from the tribe of Judah. We see that in the, the words of Jacob, the words of Israel from Genesis 49. Second, he is the root of David or a branch of David. For that reference, turn to Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 is very interesting. And I commend it to your study. Isaiah 11 in Isaiah 11, there is a, a prophecy concerning the restoration of a remnant from Israel. Now think with me. It's a prophecy concerning the restoration of a remnant. It's a restoration that, it is, that is described, or it's a, a restoration, a time of restoration that is described in terms that are symbolic of Eden-like conditions. Now, what does that communicate, okay? In other words, the, the restoration that is going to take place is the restoration of a new creation. It's a new created order. It's a restoration that is going to involve the reverse of the curse. 
In other words, a return, if you will, to Eden-like conditions. This is symbolic, I believe, of this promised restoration that will take place in the new creation at the end of the age. This is a restoration that reverses the effects of the fall. Look at verse 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. This is where the term comes from. He is a rod of David, root of David. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. If you count those up, there's seven, seven references there to the spirit of God, and many take Isaiah 11 uh, to be the foundation or the basis for a reference to the sevenfold spirit in Revelation. I think that could loosely be the case. Spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, spirit of understanding, spirit of counsel and might, spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. Verse 3, his delight, this rod from the stem of Jesse, this branch, his delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Who is this describing? The Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ in his coming, he is the rod from the stem of Jesse who will rule. Verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. In other words, the, the natural processes of life and death are going to be reversed. There will be no more death, right? No more death, no more danger in that sense. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. And again, I think this is, this is uh, it's obviously, it's a language of the end, right? Language of the end. But I think symbolic language of a reversal of the curse, a return in restoration to Eden-like conditions. That's going to happen in the age to come, right? That's going to happen. They shall not hurt nor destroy, this is verse 9, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The curse is reversed. That language of the earth being full of the knowledge of the Lord We've seen that elsewhere, referring to the glory of God, um, multiplied, as it were, in image bearers over the face of the entire earth. We know that that glory is spreading now as his kingdom is spreading in new creation image bearers of God that are being converted to the preaching of the gospel. And as the gospel is preached and as God is gathering together his elect from the four corners of the, of the earth, his kingdom is expanding over the face of the earth, filling the earth with, with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, all of this is a, has a messianic reference to a, com, a coming promised Messiah and a coming promised kingdom in which the effects of the fall will be reversed. In that day, in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. Now this day, I I'm going to put this together for you for just a second. 
This day that is marked by the coming of this rod of Jesse, this day that is marked by a reversal of those, that curse associated with the fall, marked by a new Eden-like restoration of a new creation, as that is inaugurated, it comes, verse 10, in the day that that root of Jesse stands as a banner. It comes in that day where the Gentiles are seeking him and his resting place shall be glorious. So when is that? That's the day that we're in now, folks, right? That's uh, Jesus Christ having come. He is a banner to the people, a banner to the nations. The Gentiles are seeking him. This is the day that we're in now. That new creation restoration has begun. And the effects of the fall are being reversed in the preaching of the gospel and in the conversion of God's people. One day, fully and finally consummated at the end, where it'll all be returned in the new heavens and in the new earth and in the new Jerusalem. Do you see? This, again, it is um, symbolic, if you will, of this restoration, symbolic language used used to paint a picture of this coming restoration. It shall come to pass in that day, verse 11, that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. And these are Gentile nations, do you see? From Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros to Cush, from Elam and Shinar, that's in the land of Babylon, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. In other words, the Gentiles are going to pour into the kingdom. He will set up a banner for the nations, this rod of Jesse, and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. That's what's happening during this age in which we now live. That, that's, that's the age in which we find ourselves. It's the age of the end. It's the this is the time of the end. This is when the gospel is being preached. This is when God is gathering to, together his elect from the four corners of the earth. All of this is taking place during our time period. God is accomplishing this restoration. It has been inaugurated. It is yet to be fully fulfilled, but God is accomplishing this restoration now in the preaching of the gospel. Do you see? Jeremiah 23, verse 5, listen. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. When was he raised? At his incarnation. (laughs) He was raised uh, at his ascension where he received the kingdom. A king shall reign and prosper. That king is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is reigning and his kingdom, he is prospering. (laughs) He will execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And that's what they used to say. As the Lord lives, who brought up the the, the Israel from out of Egypt. Now, verse 8, um, as the Lord lives who brought up the, and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country, from all the countries where I had driven them, they shall dwell in their own land. In other words, no longer is it going to be the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Now, it's the Lord who has brought us out of the north country, from the north and south and east and west, Gentiles coming into the kingdom. You can see, right, these references you can see how there is a conquering, overcoming, 
prevailing character to this messianic figure. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David, and he is conquering in the preaching of the gospel, receiving to himself the benefits that were hard won through his sacrifice at the cross. You see? Conquering through his sacrifice. These, all these references we know to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. So back in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5 then. Revelation 5, verse 5, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And all that has been promised now begins to come to pass. John, in his despair, represents, as it were, the, 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 the sad condition of all of humanity, the sorrowful, tragic condition of all mankind. Our condition is a tragedy. Uh, our condition, we should weep. We should weep with John when we come to acknowledge, understand, and see our own condition, our own state. When we understand our helpless estate, it should cause us to weep. It should cause us to, to despair and ask, is there anyone? Is there anyone who can deliver? The elder, that representative of the people of God, prompts us to look through tear-filled eyes in particular, the tear-filled eyes of John here to see the Savior of the world, the promised seed, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the promised son of David who would sit on David's throne into eternity, the one given in fulfillment of all the promises that God made to his people. And we should look through that despair and see the victorious warrior conquering king. Uh, our enemies have been defeated by a mighty conqueror, and this conqueror is the one who is worthy. Then John looked, verse 6, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So, in exceedingly close proximity to the very throne of God, right, in the midst of the throne, our conquering warrior king stands bearing the marks, as it were, of his overcoming. He stands bearing the identity, if you will, as our overcomer. He stands in the midst of the throne room as a lamb who was slain. In other words, in, immediately in our understanding, immediately in the Apostle John's understanding, this one bears the characteristic appearance of a sacrifice that has been offered in death, and particularly a sacrifice that has been offered in death for sin. That was the picture of the sacrificial lamb in Israel's history. He hears lion, root of David, bearing those messianic overtones of a conquering king, and he turns and behold, he looks and sees a lamb as though it had been sacrificed in death, right? He hears one thing and he turns and he sees another. How did our king overcome? How did our conquering 
warrior, messianic, victorious, triumphing king, how is it that he conquered? He conquered through his own death as a sacrifice. You see that the juxtaposition of those two pictures, it's very important to understand, especially as we go through the book of Revelation. The juxtaposition of those two pictures, the picture of a lamb would have thrust John's thoughts into the ceremonial worship of Israel, the cultic worship of Israel under the old covenant. He would have remembered the Passover lamb slaughtered, the blood spilt to protect God's people from the angel of death. All the blood spilt at the tabernacle, right? The temple as Israel sought an atonement for sin. It was a bloody religion. Bloody religion, blood, 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 day in, day out, blood spilt. They said that the Brook Kidron off the eastern wall of Jerusalem ran red most of the year for all the blood that was pouring out of the city as a result of the sacrifice of the lambs. He would have remembered, he would have remembered the words of John the Baptist on the banks of the Jordan, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Right? Those images would have been very present in John's mind as he looks and he sees the lamb who is slain. He conquers, our king conquers, through his own sacrificial death. He now stands in the throne room of heaven, having been raised from the dead in victory, victorious over sin, victorious over the grave. So can you see then in this picture and the juxtaposition of these two images, can you see how Jesus Christ himself then is the antitype of all of those Old Testament types and shadows, right? He's the substance for what all of those shadows, all of those pictures pointed to. All of those shadows represented in the sacrificial system of Israel point to the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice as our propitiation. What does God mean to communicate to us in the symbol of a slain lamb? What does God mean to communicate to us? What does God intend for us to connect here? Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of those types and shadows. There's the connection of the two. Jesus Christ is the lamb who was slain. That lamb, a picture of Old Testament Israel's sacrificial system. And now he stands in the throne room of heaven... And John sees him as a lamb, our, the lion of the tribe of Judah, standing as a lamb as though it had been slain. He sees that and he connects the two. Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, is the promised fulfillment of all of those types and shadows. Do you see? They were merely types. Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice for sins. Those were merely types. Now, I want to make a point for you and draw a connection for you from that. It's going to be important for us to understand that as we go through the book of Revelation and see further images like that, further symbols like that. Visions, this vision in particular and others that follow, visions are given after what is said in order to interpret what is said, right? In in order to interpret the Old Testament type, visions are given to interpret those Old Testament types. Things are said to interpret those Old Testament types. He hears lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, conquering warrior, messianic king. He turns and behold a lamb as though it had been slain. The lamb as though it had been slain interprets what he hears. Do you see? This is the way that he conquered. 
This is the way that he overcame. This is the way that he prevailed. He is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament types and shadows, right? What he sees interprets what he hears. What you have then, again, is the juxtaposition of these two images, a victorious lion and the slain lamb. And again, this is the Lord Jesus Christ in fulfillment of all of God's plans and purposes. This is what God intended from the very beginning. The overcoming or the prevailing, the conquering, could only be inaugurated and accomplished through the suffering of his cross, only through the work of his spirit. So verse 6 then, he's described then as having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Again, we see this dovetailing with our study this morning. Seven horns, seven eyes, seven spirits. Seven, again, symbolic, the number of perfection, number of fullness, number of completion. He's, he is described as having seven horns, seven eyes, seven spirits, which are the seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth. In other words, he, the Lord Jesus Christ, has the fullness of the spirit, the, the spirit without measure. He has the fullness. He's been given the fullness of the Spirit. Horns representing strength or power. Eyes in Scripture are reference to wisdom, knowledge, omniscience, omnisapience. And these seven eyes are the seven spirits of God. Again, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Revelation chapter 4 verse 5. From the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Again, all representative of the fullness of the Spirit, the full power of the Spirit, the full enablement of the Spirit, the Spirit without measure. Everywhere, again, as we discussed this morning, everywhere a work of the Spirit, a work of the Spirit. This could be described, as it were, as the age of the Spirit. Uh, I was reminded we were at fellowship this afternoon, and uh, we got on the subject of that, uh, and talking about the 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 relationship of this to Zechariah chapter three, Zechariah chapter four. If you're not familiar with those texts, I invite you to 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 go and look at those texts, where we begin seeing what's taking place. There is the restoration of the temple, the restoration of the nation. This is this restoration process that is taking place. There's going to be a restoration of the remnant. And Joshua, the high priest, Zerubbabel, responsible for rebuilding the temple. Rebuilding the temple. What do we know to be the temple in the New Testament? The temple is referred to as the people of God, one living stone built upon another. And Zerubbabel is told, this picture of the two olive trees and their dripping oil, that anointing oil, as it were, into the lampstands, into the bowl, uh, that representing the power of the Spirit, which sets alight the flames that sit atop the lampstand. We look at the lampstands representing the churches. The Lord draws upon those pictures in Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 3, in speaking to the churches. The lights atop the lampstand representing the people of God. Lights who turn many to wisdom, turn many to the Lord, who shine as stars in the heavens forever. Daniel chapter 12, right? This image of the Holy Spirit in chapter 3, chapter 4 of Zechariah. And finally, He says to Zerubbabel, not by your power, not by your might, but by my spirit, says the Lord, right? The age of the spirit, the spirit of God at work through his people, the church. It began in Acts, Acts chapter one. Listen to Acts chapter one, verse six. Therefore, when the disciples had come together, 
They asked him, the Lord, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this when the promised restoration is going to take place? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which, are the, which the Father has put in his own authority, but rather, verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what does that power, what is that power for? What's the purpose of that power? What does that power do? You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The power of the Spirit poured out at Pentecost so that all the world may hear the preaching of the gospel, hear of the Lord Jesus Christ, that God may gather in together his elect from the four corners of the earth in the preaching of the good news. Back in Revelation chapter 5 then, verse 7, he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now he, taking the scroll, he's prepared to open the seals. The Lord Jesus Christ receives the kingdom. All authority is given to him. He begins to rule over his kingdom, and he begins to open the seals. And we're going to look at that very soon. The scroll, this week the Savior, next week we'll look at the song. Now think with me for a moment. If you remember from our consideration of Revelation chapter 2, chapter 3, the Lord's refrain to believers in the church is to overcome. To overcome. Chapter 2, verse 7. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Chapter 2, verse 11. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Chapter 2, verse 17. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Chapter 2, verse 26, he who overcomes keeps my works until the end. To him, I will give power over the nations. Chapter 3, verse 5, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Chapter 3, verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Chapter 3, verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. <laughs> Amazing. That last quote makes the point. The basis of the exhortations for his church to overcome, and again, those seven churches, representative of the church as at large, the church as a whole, the basis of those exhortations for his church to overcome and the foundation for our own hope in overcoming is the fact that he has overcome. Do you see? He is the overcomer. He is the one who has prevailed, has conquered to take the scroll and to open its seals. He has overcome all our enemies. He has secured our victory. He's the one who has won the triumph. And he always now leads us in triumph. And so what are we commanded to do then, brothers and sisters? Based upon the fact that he has overcome and he has overcome for us, we are commanded now to overcome in him. Overcome, overcome, overcome. Do you see? His victory is our victory if we persevere. A faithful witness and a persevering witness in this time of our tribulation to the end, and we overcome. Do you see? We overcome. He overcame in his suffering and persevered in obedience to the point of death, even death of the cross, he overcame and received glory. 
we overcome in him by persevering to the end in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, in obedience to the gospel. We persevere, we receive glory in our union with him. Do you see? We are commanded to persevere, a faithful, persevering witness. John chapter 16, verse 33, the Lord Jesus Christ is in the upper room with his disciples. They're about to walk to the Garden of Gethsemane right before the Lord prays for them in John 17. And the Lord Jesus Christ has described to them what is about to happen. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to depart from them by way, by means of the cross. He's not going to be with them. But in departing from them, the Lord is going to send a helper, another helper to them, the Spirit of God. And he tells them what their ministry in this world is going to be like in the age that they're now in, this new covenant age in which the gospel is being preached. The world, the the devil has come down, having a short time, full of wrath, persecuting the the offspring of the woman. Uh, The world is against them, is going to be persecuting them. And so the Lord tells them ahead of time that this is going to happen, and he tells them so that they'll remember that when it happens, there is one who is sovereign, who told them it would happen, who is ruling over that, (laughs) and they can take confidence in him. So he says in John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the midst of this world and all of the tribulation, all of the tribulation that the church will face, the Lord says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me, as you look to me in faith, as you follow me in faith, as you remember the words that I said to you, I tell you these things so that you can have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have what? Overcome the world. The Lord Jesus Christ has overcome So what is the overcoming then that we're charged with? We're charged with overcoming by looking to him in faith, clinging to him in faith, following him in faith, obeying him in faith, persevering through the strength that his own spirit supplies us, persevering in faith, persevering to the end. He has overcome. So brother and sister, indwelt by his spirit, you overcome. We can overcome. He's won the battle for us. He's won the victory. We can overcome. We overcome through faith in him. What is the victory? that has overcome the world. Our faith. (laughs) Amen. Praise God. Amen. Right? He is the overcomer. We overcome in him. We do that through his spirit. The Lord said there that he would not leave us orphans. He said that he would come to us, and he has come to us. He's come to us through his spirit. And through his spirit, in union with the one who has overcome for you, you persevere and overcome in him. Amen? We need to overcome together. Uh, and those who overcome will be in glory with him. What a day that will be, right? Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, praise you, God, for this, uh, the, the gift, the blessing of this overcomer, uh, this worthy one who sacrificed his own self in death for us, stood in our place, our substitute, uh, bearing the wrath that we rightly deserve, and for us has overcome, conquering, prevailing through the death of his cross and raised, declaring himself to be the Son of God in power, raised by the Spirit of God in in accord or according to the Spirit. And that resurrection now, our own in union with him, 
raised to walk in newness of life by the Spirit. Help us, Lord, to obey you. Help us to live for you. Help us to walk in the strength of the Spirit. Help us to depend upon the Spirit. Lord, we're so woefully forgetful uh, so often, Lord. Keep our minds fixed on unseen things in the heavenlies and help us to uh, maintain uh, a day-by-day, minute-by-minute focus on you and on your word and on faith and help us to overcome as we uh, live this life. And may we be a faithful, persevering witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. May your gospel be preached. May it be found on our lips uh, to the praise of your glory. And may many, all of your elect, come into the kingdom. May he receive the full reward of his suffering. Uh, May uh, that vast multitude uh, be gathered such that the Lord Jesus Christ would come back and consummate the kingdom and we rule and reign with him. We love you, Lord. We look forward to that day. Thank you for your promises and we know that all of those promises find their fulfillment in him and we trust him, trust you uh, for that day. In Jesus' name, amen.